Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My name is Andreas Steno and oh boy, a roller coaster we had today. We are sending to you live hot on the heels of the FOMC meeting Wednesday, December 14. And uh, we basically had live tickets for the good old down up down pattern in equity markets around this FOMC meeting. Uh, but ultimately, we will probably end the day in red here almost across the board, but we'll anyone listen to what Jay Powell said? That is the question for the next 30 minutes. And uh, with me to uh, help me guide us through all of the noise around this FOMC meeting, I have a um, Jedi from the dollar liquidity galaxy, Darius Dale, founder of 42 <laughs> Macro. Good to see you, my friend. We use the force today, my friend. How you doing, Andres? <laughs> we probably need the force today because it's tricky out there. Um, in 10, 15 minutes, we will shift gears and uh, look a bit at global inflation pressures as well and the Bank of England meeting tomorrow. And therefore, we have uh, one of our editors in the UK with us as well, James Helliwell. Uh, good evening to you and uh, good to see you. Good evening. I hope that the electricity stays on in the meantime here in the UK. It's looking very bleak for us. Fingers <laughs> <laughs> crossed the internet doesn't get cut off. <laughs> exactly. But uh, first things first, Darius, uh, what are your key takeaways from this FOMC meeting? Uh, yes, uh, you know, no need to me to tell you that it was hawkish. Uh, I thought there were sort of three key things that I heard uh, that represented incremental steps forward uh, by the committee. So number one, uh, the substantially more evidence uh, in terms of their characterization of what's been happening on the inflation front from a reported data perspective, uh, that was new. Um, it's a transition from you know the clear and convincing evidence, clear and compelling evidence that they had uh, highlighted earlier. And it sort of is an indication that the community is less, I guess, responsive to some of the sort of um, immaculate disinflation that we've observed in the last couple of inflation reports. Uh, number two, uh, he did mention, and I'm not so sure he really meant to say this, but he, cer he certainly, because he kind of backtracked a little bit, uh, but he initially said that they were getting close to sufficiently restrictive, um, which is which is pretty interesting in the context uh, of uh, their prior guidance, and more importantly, in the context of, of sort of where these sort of annualized inflation rates are currently tracking, which are now well north or well south of the Fed current Fed's funds rate. And then lastly, uh, I thought the unanimity of the statement and the dot plot uh, in terms of the lack of dispersion on next year's uh, uh, year-end dot uh, was pretty telling. Um, so it seems to be that Powell, in between the prior FOMC in the early November and in this this FOMC, uh, has done a you know pretty courageous job of you know aggregating consensus amongst policymakers. Which you know there was starting you were starting to see some of them break rank a little bit, uh, and I expect them to be breaking rank a lot more as we progress throughout the new year. But certainly from the perspective of everything that was expected of this uh, 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 event today, uh, it's very hawkish as hawkish as it could possibly be, in my opinion. Yeah, I tend to agree, Darius. And one of the things I noted was the increase in the unemployment forecast. Uh, I think they're aiming for 4.7 4 now in the base case, uh, basically more than a percentage point uh, higher than today, right? Uh, so pairing such an unemployment forecast with continued interest rate hikes, what does that cocktail tell you? Well, it tells you that they want a deep recession. Um, so a couple things on the unemployment side, right? Uh, the unemployment, if you look at uh, the history of that time series, you know, I think it goes back to like the 1940s or something like that. It's never gone up by 100 basis points without having a recession. Like that. <laughs> so if I can figure that out, you can figure that out. James, you can figure that out. I think the 400 PhDs, the FOMC can figure that out. And they are effectively implicitly uh, uh, forecasting a recession vis-a-vis -vis the labor market, irrespective of the fact that 
um, um, their growth forecast uh, uh, don't explicitly state that. Uh, I think they would have got a lot of pushback from the markets on that. Um, so that that's my thought on, on unemployment. Uh, and then also they revised up their core PCE targets, by the way. Um, so that was a pretty uh, pretty interesting in the context of saying, hey, look, we're going to get more uh, sort of progress on the labor market front relative to bringing down inflation, yet it's not going to work as much as we uh, initially anticipated. So uh, this is a committee that's getting very concerned about a wage price spiral, particularly emanating in the services sector. Darius, no one is better than you at breaking down inflation trends. And we obviously had the monthly inflation report out yesterday with interesting news, a clear surprise to the downside of expectations. So what are your sort of key takeaways from that report and the ramifications for the Federal Reserve outlook? You're probably, you're way too kind, man. I'm probably like the 37th ranked person on earth who can break down U.S. inflation. <laughs> Number one, I guess, in this show. But uh, anyway, so I did put together a few charts uh, uh, as it relates to the inflation because I, relative to what the committees uh, sort of uh, communicated today vis-a-vis -vis Powell, uh, I do believe that we're starting to see some significant progress on the inflation front that may morph into a very different dynamic as by the time we get to the FOMC, the February 1st FOMC. So I'll start uh, with the first chart. Uh, which is uh, number 10, Brian, if you throw that slide up, uh, first chart where it says uh, mission accomplished on core inflation. Yep. Uh, so what I'm showing here in this chart, headline CPI, core CPI, headline PC inflation and core PC inflation on a month over month annualized rate of change basis. And as you can see, we are now tracking at annualized rates that are significantly below the Fed's target. And so it's telling, it's starting to send a signal to other market participants that, hey, look, the Fed, if they just kept the, the Fed funds rate here, the base effects and the and the and the, and the progress that were already made from a momentum sequential momentum perspective are going to drag the time series down to a significantly lower level. Um, the next chart we show a uh, slide 11, which is the three month annualized rate of change of those uh, same four uh, time series. And as you can see, we're not quite there yet from the perspective uh, of, of of core inflation. That's chart 11, Brian. Um, we're, we're not quite there yet from the perspective of core inflation. So on a three month annualized rate of change basis, core CPI. And core PC, don't forget, core PC is uh, still lagged by a month. So this is October data. Uh, the November data are more than likely going to come down. Um, we're not quite there yet in terms of the playing limbo, getting under that dotted red line in these charts, which is the FO, uh, which is the Fed funds rate. So, uh, but again, we get a, a December CPI in mid-January, and we get a, a November PC report at the end of this month, and a January and a December PC report at the end of January. So we got three more inflation reports before the February 1st FOMC. And it's very likely, at least from the perspective of core, PC, uh, core PCE, that the three-month annualized rates of change are actually playing limbo. It's very clear that the core CPI is going to be playing limbo by then as well. And then um, just two more quick charts on slide 13, uh, which is uh, where we show all the various metrics of, of core inflation on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. Because again, I don't think the year-over-year -year numbers are, tell you much at this point in the cycle where we're trying to kind of all game the, the, the we're all sort of tripping over ourselves to, to front run the Fed pivot. So looking at the three month annualized rates of change for these various measures of core, uh, most of it's noise from my perspective, because Powell's already told us what to focus on, which is this, the cluster of bars on the far right, uh, which is services, CPI, X, rent of shelter. And this to me is one of the most important uh, data points we've received as market participants in recent months. Um, we've had a substantial deceleration in course or in services CPI less rate of shelter uh, from 5.7 three month annualized to 3.2 percent three month annualized in in in, uh, in November. Now Powell and the committee are very much taking the view that this is unsustainable. It's probably going to go back up. It's probably going to get back towards 
uh, wage inflation is, but I'm not so sure that that's the case because we're starting to see significant progress on the wage front as well. If you look at private sector unemployment cost index, uh, that's now tracking at 4.2% on a, on a, on a quarter, <coughs> quarter annualized rate of change basis, and that's a third quarter number. That 4.2 could easily be three and two and a half by the time you get into Q1 of next year. And so, and then lastly, the, uh, the last inflation chart I'll leave you with is the, the next chart, slide 14, uh, where we show these various measures of underlying inflation. Now, underlying inflation, which in my opinion is arguably the, the most important time series that we could be looking at uh, um, in terms of trying to gain the Fed reaction function, median CPI, trim mean CPI, median PCE, trim mean PCE, and then ultimately how all those things kind of lead into core PC inflation. And with the exception of median CPI, they're now all playing limbo with respect to the Fed funds rate. And so you just roll forward in time, we're gonna start to accumulate three month annualized rates of change and all these really key indicators that would suggest that, hey, look, the Fed, if it wants to back off, will be you know, increasingly getting signals that they can back off. Although after today, I'm not so sure February 1st is that is that date. Darius, if we look at three-month annualized figures for uh, U.S. inflation, we have a lot of evidence that inflation is cooling off by now. I wanted to show you uh, a chart that I made earlier today on the entire inflation basket minus shelter, so minus housing mm -hmm. on a three-month annualized basis. Uh, and that's chart two, Brian, if you could bring that up. And it's it's essentially showing that we are already below zero. So prices mm -hmm. are dropping on aggregate if we set aside housing. Um, mm -hmm. We can, of course, not just neglect housing. As someone texted to me, this is the so-called homeless basket or what, but um, in any case, <laughs> uh, um, in any case, um, it is evident that we have um, a different inflation picture to just one or two quarters ago. But yeah. the question I wanted to ask you in relation to these three-month annualized charts, it basically means that we take the last three months and then we replay them over the next nine months, and then we see whether we get to a an inflation picture below or above target. Is it something that the Fed watches? Yeah, so uh, prior to today, it certainly was. I mean, all throughout the second half of this year, going back to uh, the July FOMC, and, and then he really tripled down on it in the September FOMC, he said, hey, look, we care about three-month annualized because ultimately, um, at least at that point in time, and this it appears to be that they've, they've shifted from this, at that point in time, there was still some expectation that they could sort of guide this and land the plane at a soft landing. Uh, I still think they'd like to have that happen, but it's increasingly clear just from their unemployment rate uh, forecast that, 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 that their willingness to have a soft landing or their desire for a soft landing is lower than it used to be. Obviously, they prefer a soft landing, and an immaculate disinflation, which I would argue we're actually observing <laughs> in the statistics. By the way, we've never seen a significant breakdown in core inflation ahead of a recession before in the history of the U.S. economy. I mean, the core inflation time series go back to the late 1950s. And so you look at all the recessions we've seen since then, um, there's only been one in, uh, recession. And I want to say it's the 1980 recession where inflation was like marginally sideways to down before that. Usually it's going up into and through the recession because it's a, it's a late cycle lagging indicator. So um, there's some interesting stuff going on in the U.S. economy that's quite historic. And I'm not so sure that the Fed, which is very clearly anchoring on historical relationships between the labor market and its core services inflation, uh, may not be necessarily picking up on that. But I do believe uh, at some point in the early part of 2023 that they will pivot towards picking up on it relative to how we ended today. If we look at the U.S. inflation data, it seems like we have compelling evidence of a slowdown in the sort of pace of price hikes. But is this a global phenomenon by now, Darius? 
We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a loaded question because uh, we got my friend James here as well. But, uh, you know, we got Bank of England and, uh, and the ECB meetings, among other meetings, tomorrow. And from my perspective, what we've seen across all these economies is a significant breakdown in core and really in headline and core inflation pressure uh, on a sequential basis in recent in recent in in the most recent month. And so and not only was that a sequential significant breakdown, we're also seeing you know significant breakdowns relative to expectations as well. So it's very clear that across the developed world, we're seeing again. I'm, I, I hate to use this. We keep using this phrase, but there is an immaculate disinflation going on at the current moment, and that, in my opinion lend some credence to the transitory camp, right? You know, I've always said, you know, going back to the earlier part of this year on the program, I said both camps are going to be proven right in the cycle, most likely. Persistent camp from April 2021 through, let's call it, I don't know, uh, early October 2022. And then you might have the transitory camp get proven right for a brief window of time before we all puke into a recession at some point in the second half of next year, in our opinion. So uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to James for some uh, more detailed thoughts on the UK. Yes, I mean, since we are a global company at Real Vision, we obviously have boots on the ground right around uh, the globe. And uh, James, we have with you with us from um, from the UK. Uh, I wanted to get your take on the inflation numbers out of the UK today. They also um, decelerated relative to last month. So take us through your thoughts on the inflation pressures in the UK and Europe. Yeah, they, they did. That's right, uh, Andreas. I think Darius made some good points about um, the the pace, not under the headline pace slowing, but also um, when you went through the the breakdown, ex housing as well, basically everything else uh, softening. But I think the story in the UK it shares some similarities in the most uh, recent print, but I think the bigger picture is one where the the risks are still I think skewed to the upside. So one of the things that Andres, I know we were chatting about a little bit earlier um, off camera was how clearly the energy situation in Europe is, is well, more unique to the region compared to what's going on in the States. So we, as Europeans, remain vulnerable to, uh, to energy prices, more so perhaps than, um, the, than our friends in the States. So that's one of the key uh, differences. Now, when we took a look at the, uh, this morning's report on UK inflation, it showed that the basket of about 12 different factors um, it actually did show breadth of deceleration. So six out of the 12 categories were in fact slowing. So it isn't just, or the optimists have pointed to the fact that it isn't just petrol prices or gas prices that came down being the only reason for the, uh, the downtick. But one of the most stubborn components of food prices, after shelter, which we consider, of course, in every uh, every equation, food prices accelerated further. And they're, they've, they're increasing at about the fastest rate that we've seen in, in decades. So that remains an issue. And no amount of rate hikes is going to make the price of wheat <laughs> or anything else cheaper, no. right? So, so that's very, very sticky and very difficult to get in order. 
The other thing um, to point out in terms of the current situation and some anecdotal evidence of what's happening quite literally uh, on your front doorstep here, here in the UK at the moment, aside from the weather where it's very cold suddenly across Europe, which clearly plays into the energy uh, crisis and, and concerns there, sudden cold snap, um, are all of the people who are on strike at the moment. So beginning with postal workers for the next couple of days, so Royal Mail, nobody's delivering letters or fewer people are delivering letters and post at this time of year. We've got nurses for the National Health Service going on strike for the first time ever, I believe. That's how desperate things have become um, from tomorrow. And that's joining, um, who else have we got? Uh, rail workers, not surprisingly. Um, they're always on strike here in the UK and a bunch of other sectors as well. So the traditional unionized stuff as well. Um, so it's it's almost uh, reminiscent of the, the winter of discontent in some ways, but um, the, the key thing to focus on in terms of today's print and, and this month's CPI data is that, yes, whilst it ticked down, it ticked down from 11.1 to 10.7%. It's still double digits and still compounding at a higher rate, even if the Bank of England does see its target rate, so its estimate, its target rate still being 2%, but its estimated rate of 4% inflation realised by the end of uh, 2023, so in a year's time. Um, it's still not deflation. So the cost of living is already at a critical point, maybe a breaking point for some people who, you know, there, there are still too many citizens who are now resorting to food banks and things like that, which seems crazy in, in, in this kind of country. But we're, we're shackled ultimately by um, wage inflation or wage demands. The strikes that are going on, Jeremy Hunt has said that he's, you know, he's going to stay firm and the country needs to take some pain and in other words not uh, tolerate or, or uh, bow to those price uh, to those wage demands um, as they'll only contribute to inflation longer term whether or not it capitulates remains to be seen but it does appear as though the messaging at least for now is clear in um, the government and the bank of england preparing us for a recession so ultimately the hard medicine um, or the bitter pill to swallow being the only way out of this now, the, a couple of other unique things that I want to highlight here from the perspective of the UK is that ultimately it is, to some extent, Brexit coming back to bite us on the backside. Um, so clearly, if there are uh, labour shortages, as there are in the US as well, reportedly, as well as the UK, depending on whose opinion you read, um, into another thing that we're, we're being uh, beaten up by now um, uh, is basically a lack of uh, migrant workers arguably so the supply of labor when the labor market is tight to work in the services sectors typically lower paid uh, jobs like cafes bars restaurants whatever it may be um is 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 driving inflation so if you've got food prices and and, and wage higher wages still problematic even if the price at the pump fuel has come off oil's pretty much flat year over year um it, it's driving you can see it showing up in the insolvencies now so the, the bankruptcies in the UK are, are spiking, not surprisingly, they're on something of a surge. And it's generally the smaller businesses who are unable to tolerate the slowdown in, in, in um, demand, but more significantly, the um, rise in food prices and so input costs and, and also wages. So there doesn't appear to be a resolution to that in sight. If anything, it's, at least on the wage front, only likely to get worse. And there isn't a solution of say, well, let's have more um, migrant workers coming all of a sudden because politically that's 
that's not really something which we can resort to for decisions that have been made in the past. I think just lastly there, um, the other point to make is that similarly with supply chains and simply, uh, so that's sort of the services inflation, but on the goods side, it's again very difficult to get the flow of goods through the ports, um, particularly at this time of year, again, for the reasons that have been mentioned around uh, around leaving the EU and things like that. So, yeah, I think in essence, um, the the terminal rate of 4.5% with the Bank of England currently at 3% and expected to hike 50 basis points as we saw the Fed do today um, in, in tomorrow's meeting and um, taking us up to 3.5. I still feel that uh, that terminal rate is optimistic. It's on the low side of things. Um, clearly, the Fed is already there now at 4.5%. Um, in the UK and perhaps other parts of Europe, I still see there's there's uh, upside risk to inflation. Um, I'm not sure that we've, we may have seen the high print, um, but I don't think that we're going to see um, this, this transfer argument. I know that our views may differ there slightly, Andreas, and that's obviously an interesting topic for debate, but I think where we are aligned is in seeing the risks of um, ultimately the the energy shock come uh, come back to uh, haunt us in Europe and in Europe as we had earlier in the year, um, and and one of the key things that's uh, my concern there and it's slightly cynical uh, view is how China's reopening or abandonment of COVID zero has coincided with the cold snap that we're having across winter, um, all of a sudden literally to the week, and how it's uh, it's pretty convenient for the likes of Russia who have. You know, obviously, an interest in oil and uh, another hard asset set. Um, yeah, there seems to be perhaps an economic war taking place rather than uh, a, a literal war, at least as it relates to China and uh, and, and the West, um, where of course the uh, the situation in Ukraine is ongoing. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's basically where I'm at. And the, the last little piece that I've picked up today, I read a headline. So in terms of like bracing for recession. <laughs> I just sold my place. I'll be moving out of here in a couple of weeks, set up a new beautiful studio somewhere else. But uh, I just I just sold my house worrying what's going to happen in the next year or two. And I was at a stage where I wanted to move. I, I was expecting house prices to come off. Or I am expecting house prices to come off in the next year. Just to wrap things up, we've got Jeremy Hunt and, and other people in the government telling us to brace for a recession, essentially. We've also got uh, Bank of England telling us, uh, Andrew Bailey telling us today that um, a 20% decline in house prices could be tolerated by the British public. Now, if that isn't positioning you, right, or leading you down a path to accept a 20% decline in your equity, good Lord, what on earth do they have in mind in terms of the bad scenario they're trying to prepare us for? If 20% is sinners, yeah, don't worry about that, you'll be fine. Good Lord. So it's looking scary. Um, but I think to conclude, in short, um, yeah, it was a downtick. Petrol was a key driver of that. Whilst it was, there were other factors as well. I think more broadly, we're very vulnerable still to a, a, an energy price shock. And I think amongst other things, and I don't see wages and food uh, inflation necessarily being resolved by rate hikes or anything that we can necessarily influence in terms of policy here in the UK anytime soon. And we remain vulnerable and exposed to those ultimately. So. Maybe those energy blackouts are going to be uh, going to be coming in January and February, and uh, yeah, fingers crossed, I'll have internet for uh, for these live streams at uh, nine PM UK time. <laughs> We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
We will find our diesel generators for the Real Vision daily briefing in case. <laughs> in any case, James, it was a great uh, overview and we are blessed to have you with us since you're apparently the only one not being on strike in the UK right now, if I understood you correctly. <laughs> but um, James, I wanted to ask you one thing before I, I leave you for, uh, for the show. Um, Bank of England, every time they hike interest rates, seen from abroad, seen from European soil in my case, it sounds like they almost dislike doing it. So what do you make of the rhetoric within the Bank of England around these rate hikes? I think that's just British culture. I think we sound awkward, no matter what we're talking about, as I do. <laughs> no, I, I, wouldn't read, I wouldn't read too much into it. I think ultimately the big picture is, uh, that, at least from my perspective, is that they, they talk to fairly low or conservative terminal rate. That to me, it still sounds far too low. Um, and ultimately, I, th I think they're just trying to be politically sensitive or approach things slowly. Um, whereas on the other hand, that, that sort of balance isn't being found, or sorry, it's been offset by uh, the pretty blunt, steadfast rhetoric that's coming from the likes of Jeremy Hunt, where saying, no, nope, no, we're not going to meet your waste demands. You're going to have to take pain. It's for the best. So yeah, enjoy the recession and enjoy sitting in the dark. So no, that's, that's been a little bit, little bit facetious, but um, I wouldn't read too much into it. I personally feel that, uh, yeah, rates have probably got uh, a lot further to go as inflation has. Bank of England was obviously one of the central banks very involved in bond market liquidity. And uh, since we have a liquidity expert with us today, Darius, uh, I wanted to get back to you and the dollar liquidity outlook, because I tend to think that we don't talk enough about the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. We tend to focus all our energy on the potential pivot on the Fed funds rate. But what about the balance sheet? Um, let's assume we get a pivot uh, during the first half of next year, or at least a pause. Will the balance sheet contraction end with the same timing? Yeah, so that, that in my opinion, is the, is the real wild card as it relates to risk-taking in the first half of next year. So let me set the stage before we even unpack the, the kind of net liquidity dynamics that I think uh, you had, by the way, you did a fantastic job in your, on your uh, the macro uh, trading floor this past Sunday uh, with uh, Yuri and Timber. Uh, on the balance sheet. So everyone go check that out. So that was a really good discussion. Um, before we even get into liquidity, I think it's important to kind of set the stage for where consensus is heading into next year. I mean, so if you look at any Wall Street strategist, and I, I was literally laughing in my hotel room on Friday, <laughs> like they, they like listed every like major sell side bank. And I'm not kidding to a man, woman and child, everyone had a uh, uh, more or less kind of flat to up price target, but everyone thought we'd crash in the first part of the year and then the Fed would pivot and we'd red price in the recession and we'd rally substantially uh, into, the, into the second half of the year. So that's consensus on the sell side. We know what consensus is on the buy side. The buy side is still very much net short uh, risk parity, short treasuries across the curve, short stocks. Um, you know, uh, the euro is one of the uh, kind of uh, things that are standing out with respect to that long bias, but most uh, foreign currencies still very much net short as well. So that's the positioning setup. If you think about trying to take risks uh, and then the liquidity setup, uh, very much, it's unlikely that the Fed ends balance sheet uh, contraction anytime soon with respect to its quantitative easing program. That's probably going to run through at least year in. Now, is that really matter? <laughs> I would argue no. If you look at Q4 uh, to date, um, in terms of how we calculate net liquidity at 42 macro, which is the Fed's balance sheet minus the Treasury general account balance, which um, which uh, when that rises, it drains liquidity from the system and vice versa, minus uh, from those two factors, uh, minus the reverse repo facility balance for the same reason. 
We've seen both independently the Treasury General account balance decline Q4 to date and the reverse super facility balance decline Q4 to date overwhelmed quantitative tightening. And so I think it's somewhere around 179 billion of QT thus far recorded, somewhere around 250, 270 billion of, of, of TGA drain and RRP drain uh, in, uh, respectively. TGA drain is probably not going to continue. We're currently around 375 billion. Uh, right now, Yellen is targeting, or at least per the, uh, the now faulty uh, November quarterly refunding announcement, they were targeting 500 billion in the TGA, Treasury General Account Balance, by the end of March of 2023. So that's about you know 125 billion from where we are today. Um, so if you linearly smooth that out, you're probably going to get somewhere around, let's call it, you know, 25 to $35 billion of a PGA build uh, uh, into the March of next year. So that's negative. That's add additional headwind uh, for risk assets is vis-a-vis the quantitative tightening program. The big wild card, as you and I both, I think, agree on, is this massive $2.1 or $2.2 trillion balance or somewhere thereabouts uh, in the reverse repo facility balance. That thing is de facto QE waiting to be unleashed upon global financial markets whenever the market has confidence that the Fed is, according to Jay Powell's um, uh, statement today, uh, has received substantially more evidence in in, in disinflation. Now, based on the statement today, I do believe that window of time between them achieving substantially more evidence actually got a little bit wider. Um, So heading into it today, I would have thought that this would be, I thought there was a reasonably high probability based on what we expect to see over the next couple of inflation reports, that this could be the last rate hike of the cycle. I'm now very much of the view that it, they're probably still going to hike in February, no matter what um, the inflation data says. But that could very much again be the last rate hike of the cycle, and you got 2.2 trillion dollars of more or less unconstrained excess liquidity sitting there that's ready to capitalize global financial markets. And it's very clear that the dollar, which is clearly breaking down um, from a quantitative perspective, um, could would easily get destroyed on that. And obviously, that's very positive for risk. Yeah. Uh, One thing I could add in terms of the Treasury general account is that we have the debt ceiling looming in 2023. And usually the U.S. Treasury is not willing to incentivize politicians to negotiate forever, which means that they bring the TGA down ahead of such a deadline to ensure that they reach a conclusion on the debt ceiling. Uh, So that's at least something to watch. It will add liquidity if they continue to uh, bring down the level of this Treasury general account into the early parts of uh, of next year. Uh, Let's move to some uh, questions from the audience there is because um, we obviously have a ton of them coming in given that it's the Fed day. Um, So first of all, um, we have a question uh, from a a trader on Twitter uh, asking you whether it is possible that the Fed may have to raise its inflation target from the 2% to even 3 or 4% uh, as a consequence of this inflation discussion we've had. Uh, yeah, so uh, we've been on the tape all year. And talked about this, haven't oh, we? James, my apologies. <laughs> sorry, Darius. No, we, we've heard, I'm sure I've heard them talk about it. So I'm again mixed up with the UK. They began talking about 4%. I can't remember if it was a BOE or the, or the Fed. Like last week, one of them began talking in terms of 4%. So they've, they've unofficially abandoned it already in the mines. Uh, Whoever it was, BOE or Fed, they've already started letting go of the target, walking it back. What do you reckon, Darius? Yeah, so uh, we've been on the tape with this more or less all year, saying that they they may and they will eventually abandon their inflation target, uh, their two percent inflation target. I mean, they've already abandoned it, right? Going back to uh, the fall of the spring, the summer of 2020, um, when they you know swapped two percent 
for an average inflation target of 2%. So that was a de facto uh, increase in the inflation target that was one of the features of what caused us to get to this point today. Um, um, they don't have a political cover based on that experience to, uh, to, to change their inflation target, nor is the bond market currently anticipating uh, them to change their inflation target. If you look at term premia, you look at uh, you know inflation uh, and swap rates. In fact, I have a chart, uh, Brian, if you look at slide 35, where we show the one-year, one-year forward, and two-year, one-year forward uh, break-even and inflation swap rates, and they're all coalescing around 2.5%. And so this is the bond market effectively saying, or the inflation uh, market effectively saying, hey, look, we're already at the upper boundary of what we would consider to be a 2% average inflation target. Um, so now if you, if you, you know, so there's not really much wiggle room uh, from that perspective for them to do that anytime soon. But, you know, we've talked about our secular inflation model various points throughout the year. Um, and that model um, in terms of, you know, tr tr projecting the sort of the underlying mean of core PCE, you know, it's, it's saying, hey, on the high end of our estimate range, which is 2.3 to 2.9%, we could actually have double the amount of core PCE inflation over the next 10 years that we've had in the trailing 10 years. And so, you know, if the Fed is trying for two, the market thinks two and a half, and our model is saying three, more or less, you know, there's going to, there's going to be a day of reckoning where we have to understand that, hey, is the Fed really willing to sacrifice millions more jobs than would otherwise be necessary to go from, let's say, three to two? Or will they just, you know, at some point in time, you know, let's say in some mid-2024, have a review, <laughs> which you kind of tip the hat to, uh, 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 where they do uh, kind of raise that thing to three. I think they're going to. Uh, I just don't think there's going to be a linear press to a process. Uh, guys, you know, I like a bit of banter and we've received a comment from George on YouTube. He's uh, he's saying, isn't it possible that Jay Powell produces so much gas that it will solve the EU energy crisis <laughs> by itself? <laughs> and I guess the answer to that question is yes. Uh, but um, the final serious question of the day is uh, from a guy called Cashflow on YouTube. Uh, he's asking you, Darius, with wage growth, growth running as high as now, isn't it unreasonable to expect sort of a Goldilocks view of inflation decreasing with growth increasing or staying flat from current levels? Yeah, by the way, cash flow is a phenomenal Twitter name. <laughs> I should quit finance and start rapping. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yes, it's extremely unreasonable. As I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the program, we've never seen core inflation break down as materially as it already has on a sequential basis prior to a recession. You need a recession to, to cause the, the sort of animal spirits in the economy and the wage uh, price spiral um, dynamics to sort of ease in a way, the labor market to ease in a way uh, to really get core inflation down. But we are observing it in the data. It's happening. There's no way you, there's no advance and buts about it. You have charts on it. I have charts on it. And so we have to accept the fact that, hey, look, as unprecedented as everything we've seen in the last two and a half years has been, we have to now continue to believe that, hey, there might be some other unprecedented dynamics. And this is the benefit of having a data-driven process, right? I mean, if you, you know, if you, you just took the view that, hey, look, you know, there's one view that, you know, I, I continue to push back on just using as, as an example, you know, there's been this view that, hey, look, the economy's about to go into recession, it's about to go into recession, it's about to go into recession. But if you took that view, I don't know, probably six months in June, six months ago, when the economy, when that view really took the, uh, kind of took the forefront, you know, you've lost money in, in, on, on the, the things you would have bought, bonds, et cetera, most importantly, on, um, on, on taking those views. So I think it's really important uh, that we humble ourselves as investors. If, the, if uh, Most of us have been humbled at various points uh, this year in the market. I certainly have. I think I'm down uh, 360 basis points here today, um, this, which is not, not, not something to write home about. Um, um, you know, we've all been humbled by, by the market this year. Um, um, you know, so I think, believe it's very important to maintain that kind of 
integrity with respect to being data driven because again there's a lot of for lack of a better word stuff happening <laughs> that we you know that is not normal Final question from our member, Paul, uh, and I don't know whether I'd have to throw this question at you. There is, even though you can answer almost everything, but uh, it's not well. He, he writes, closing question for Andreas, the meme steno, Darius, the skipper Dale, and English James of Helliwell. Who will win the World Cup, Argentina or France? Darius, you first. <laughs> uh, Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> James. I'll tell you who won't. Leeds United won't win it. <laughs> My team. I'll go with England. So. Uh, yeah, probably. Everybody wants, well, I think I speak for everybody where they want to see Messi lift that trophy before he bows out, given that Ronaldo's missed out on it. But it'd be iconic. Even as an Englishman, I can say that the Argentinians. That's love. <laughs> I, I'm I'm born and raised as a Real Madrid fan, so I cannot concur with that view. I think we will uh, we will leave it at that for the soccer chat for this edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'd like to sum up a bit. Um, it seems as if we have more compelling evidence from the US of slowing inflation relative to the UK and the Eurozone, which is an interesting divergence also reflected currently in a higher Euro versus US dollar reading. Uh, so essentially when inflation continues to uh, to print at high levels in Europe relative to the US, it makes sense to chase a story of high interest rates in Europe relative to the US. And um, today's takeaways from the FOMC is still a very hawkish Federal Reserve, despite the softening that we've seen in inflation recently. Um, first of all, Darius, uh, always a great pleasure to host you. And thank you again for being with us today. Appreciate you, man. Andreas, James, man, it's an excellent uh, conversation. And as I, if I can just leave everyone with one quick thing, yeah. humility is key. I mean, this was, uh, we, you know, we could very well be in the middle of a phase transition in terms of asset markets and probably not just given what happened today. Uh, but I think it's very important to just, you know, be flexible, be water, don't get wed to your views, particularly in these particular moments, because that's when you make, that's when you lose the most money as an investor. So uh, that's my, uh, that's my two cents. For sure. Take, take a good break over the holidays, recharge, because you need to have a fresh mind to be flexible. If we're entrenched still in what we've been through, it's, uh, it's setting up for a, a bit of a mess in the new year. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. great advice, James. Thank you. We have one thing left, uh, and that is the meme of the day. Uh, I've used it before, but I still love it. I'm going to hike interest rates until you morons stop trading monkey JPEGs. I <laughs> forgot Jay Paul. Um, I will leave you uh, with those words for today. I'll be back uh, with my friend Tommy Thornton tomorrow. So see you there. Thank you for watching today. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.